0: Welcome to Interleaved, where we take a deep dive into topics from the Daph Yomi with modern-day sages of the Torah and the world. I'm Eternel Zelos On today's episode, a communal commentary.
1: I believe that every Jew is a vessel for this text. The text must go through us and come out of us.
0: If one theme emerges from our study of Tractate Sukkah together, it is the celebration of multiplicity, the bringing together of inimitably unique and dramatically different parts into a messy yet magnificent hole. Noah Resnick talked with us about repurposing parts of condemned buildings for the renovation of a historic synagogue in downtown Detroit. Aaron Burke discussed the power of organizing for housing justice. Gabi Kirk taught us how to make a new kind of lulav that brings together Jewish and other traditions, native plants and invasive ones. Joey Weisenberg inspired us to come together through music, even if we don't want to sing or don't know how to. So it is only fitting that we conclude this seventh tractate of the Daphilmese cycle by celebrating a project whose very essence is this multivocality, this wildly ambitious yet absolutely necessary unification of the disparate. I'm talking about the Talmud Commentary of the Kreuzberg Kohl of Berlin, a striking collection of personal stories, poetry, photography, and art. Rabbi Jeremy Barovitz is Director of Jewish Learning for Hillel, Germany, and co-founder of Base Berlin. He is the Roche Kolo of the Kreuzberg Kolo, a collaboration between Hillel Deutschland and Oiv Amsterdam. The Kolo is built to be a communal learning space geared towards in-depth, committed Jewish learning, and an incubator for developing new talent and creative Europe-based teachers rooted in the Jewish tradition. The most recent cohort published a commentary on the fifth chapter of Masech Jeremy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Nintanael.
0: It's so exciting to have you. So this is the Kreuzberg-Kolel's third Talmud commentary. Mm -hmm. What was the impetus for the project? Like, how did it start? It started
1: sort of like all great things start as a joke. Um, (laughs) uh, I was walking with two of my friends and teachers, uh, Rabbi Josh Weiner and Dekel Peretz. um, And we were working then on a project called the Kreuzberg Baby Drosh. Kreuzberg is the neighborhood. We actually don't even live in Kreuzberg anymore. But Kreuzberg is the neighborhood we used to live in in Berlin. We now live in the neighborhood over called Neukon. But uh, it's where the local synagogue that we work with is based and we started this Kreuzberg Beit Drosh, like an open learning environment with like classes in the evenings on Rosenzweig and on Chidush and on uh, resistance and like all these different cool ideas. And uh, Dekel just made a joke, yeah, we have a Kreuzberg Beit Drosh, soon we'll have a Kreuzberg Kollel, And I was like, wait a minute, that's a great idea. <laughs> um, And uh, we started with like basically our friends. We were like, hey, let's get together on Mondays and spend the whole day learning Torah. Um, And we really had no plan other than the only thing we knew from the beginning is we're going to learn a parik of Talmud it wasn't planned out we didn't even know how many how long it was going to take we had no strategy we had no theory we just met in our living room which was base berlin at the time we now have a separate space and we met in our living room just learn torah and then about halfway through the semester this thing called covid happened and uh, everything changed and so we went online and suddenly there were these people from other places in europe who were like hearing that like these people are spending all day learning torah and and they were like, hey, can we join? And then like a bunch of our friends who are teachers who like didn't have a lot going on. They were like, we thought like, hey, you know, we can pay you a little bit of money and you can teach something for us. And they started doing that. And then suddenly this whole program started developing. And uh, I don't think when we started it that I knew that it was going to last past that first chapter of Talmud, which was the 19th chapter of Shabbat. And we chose that also randomly. It was just a parrot that I had learned before. And I thought that would be easier to teach for my first time. And uh, then we realized that it was coming out right before the Dafyomi cycle. So we decided let's write our own commentary and have people use it in Dafyomi. And we did it. Um, And after the first semester happened, uh, the executive director of Hillel Deutschland, Rabbi Rebecca Blady, who's also my wife, she like sat me down and also Josh Weiner, who's my really, my original partner in crime in this, and and said, um, this is actually amazing. Like, I don't think you realize what you've done. Now it's time to like turn it into something real.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. That's just the perfect Jewish story. How did you pick uh, the fifth parak of Sukkah?
1: After the first time when we realized that we finished before the Daf Yomi cycle, we decided that that's what we wanted to do throughout. So the next parak we did was the fourth chapter of Sachim, which is about Minhag, mm-hmm. and it just sounded like a really fascinating parak. And then the fifth chapter of Sukkah we chose because um, I was trying to find a parak that was like gonna match up well, and after our cycle and I was looking around, I looked at the last parak of Yoma and I looked at all the parakim of Sukkah and like I'd done Lulava Gazal, I'd like, you know, done sort of a lot of these like famous sughias in Sukkah. It's like, I guess we'll do that, but it wasn't really grabbing me. And I, I honestly wasn't even aware of the fifth chapter. And I just, one day I was like, you know what, let me look at the Mishnahs. And it was a Shabbos. It was actually a Shabbos afternoon. I was just sitting around. And I was like, "Let me just like look at the Mishnayas of the fifth chapter of Sukkah." And I just saw this one line, and it kicked the shit out of me. It said, lo ra lo simcha." The person who has not seen the Beta the celebration of the drawing of the water, doesn't know joy. And it's just like everything about so much of my Judaism just like flooded me in that moment and reading that line, um, which is what like real good Talmud study should do. Yeah. It should shake you to your core, and it just shook me. And I was like, "Oh, it's all about nostalgia. Like we're always looking to a past and how much better it was, and that's like a big part of Judaism. I mean, the the Passover Seder is nostalgia of nostalgia. Okay." <laughs> we're nostalgic for a way that we used to celebrate an event that we were nostalgic about. Um, And it's just like, it's so good. And it was so deep. And that was the reason that was the big motive. And then I looked through it and there was a lot of good stuff in there. The evil inclination plays a big role. And I just thought this is an interesting Peric to do with this group of learners.
0: Amazing. So commentaries, at least the Temudic kind are usually by a single author and because the Talmud is such a patchwork, meandering kind of text, a Talmud commentary allows its author to construct a narrative of their own by identifying themes and connections between passages that the Talmud itself does not connect. Despite the obvious advantage of a diversity of voices that a multi-author commentary offers, it's a lot harder to tie all those voices together into a cohesive work. Is that something you try to do with this commentary, or do you think there's a different kind of goal here?
1: It's a great question. First off, I'm going to reject a part of your premise. Go (laughs) go for it. Which is uh, Tosafode. Tosafode is not one individual. Tosafode is a collection. It's a school of Mm. thought. Um, And the Tosafists are trying to understand discrepancies in the text. I also think, you know, there's all these moments. I had a teacher once who every time Tosafode argued with Rashi and he was talking about it would be like Zadie why did you think this Um, (laughs) and I think there's something to that that the toast is trying to like understand their grandfather and their current reality and the text like all in one fell swoop and I think that's a little bit what we're trying to do as well I'm not trying to give a cohesive voice on the text I don't think the commentary is trying to do that I don't think the Colel is trying to do that I think What we're trying to do is show a multitude of voices on the text. I believe that every Jew is a vessel for this text. The text must go through us and come out of us, and it will come out with its own unique flavor. Um, And so there are two goals to the commentary. One is for every person who learns Talmud to understand, they have a right to be a part of this conversation. And one might even say they had a duty to lend their voice to this conversation. We've been talking about it for 1,800 years, and it's continuing. And the other goal is, like, we don't know where the great Kiddush is going to come from. I love teaching the story of uh, from Gittin, of Yochanan ben Zakkai, Yavna, and, like, uh, you know, escaping from Jerusalem. And I was just learning it one time, and someone just said to me, you know don't read it as Yavna, but rather as it will be built, or may it be built, or he shall build. And mm-hmm. this is, of course, a classic Talmudic formulation. And it blew my mind. And I've never looked at the text the same way. And this was not someone who learns text all the time. This was like someone who like grew up religious, probably hadn't learned Talmud in 20 years at that point. And it just popped in their mind. So it's like, you don't know where the great finish is going to come from. You don't know whose life experience is going to allow them to see this in the way that we need to be seeing this. And the only way we'll hear those kiddushim is if we empower the people to put them out into the world.
0: Wow. You just like summarize my life philosophy in, in, in like a minute. I'm all about that. It's
1: exceedingly rare. Like we think, oh, we have all these commentaries. We've got the Marsha and the Roche and the whatever. But like, these were once a generation. They weren't popping up because it's really hard. Yeah. First, you got to learn all of the Shas. Then you got to understand <laughs> how is all of Shas in conversation with, with each other. Right. And then you got to be like, I have something to say. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're working a little more piecemeal. Right. Um, and I don't know if someone from the kreuzberg Kollel is going to be the Gadolador or the Gadolatador who's going to write this next great commentary. I don't know but maybe whoever is going to write the next Gate commentary will also pick up one of our commentaries and be inspired.
0: Yeah. And, uh, it kind of leads well into like my next question. Cause even if, you know, one member of the Colel or one person doesn't write that once in a generation or century kind of commentary, like maybe this, the commentary that you're putting together that you did put together is kind of the commentary of the future. If the goal is to, you know, have everyone see the Torah within themselves and, you know, give to the world that Torah that's, uh, you know, specifically revealed to them, you know, maybe this is the new model.
1: And I want to say to all of you who are listening, who are not recording your thoughts on Dafiomi, if you are learning Dafiomi and you are putting in the time and you are not writing down your thoughts and you are not sharing those thoughts in the world, then you are robbing us of your Torah. You are robbing us. You have a responsibility to share your Torah with us. That's what this is supposed to be
0: absolutely I, I think about that so much just reading through your commentary it, it also just like feels more like Talmud it feels more like Gemara the Gemara itself is multi-vocal and it's you know all over the place and there's different you know media like the Kola's commentary has has prose it has poetry it has art you know it has photography um and I love that and I don't know it just seems more Talmudic
1: Awesome. I love that. <laughs> um, uh, I will say um, that happens because of the people. Um, and I really have to say, I feel really lucky to be able to learn Torah with such amazing people, all of whom are Jews living in Europe. Um, and um, the only thing I say with the commentary is you have to do something. And I'm completely non-prescriptive about what that has to look like. And uh, it's amazing what people come up with. And there's a thirst for Torah in Europe. There's a thirst here that I think in North America and Israel we like we've lost. There's an incredible vantage point that being a European Jew allows you when confronting this text. And I think that's one of the most inspiring things for me as an orech here, you know, as a visitor, as a non-native European. Um, I'm constantly in awe of the power of these people's Torah.
0: I want to read a passage from your opening commentary on the chapter, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. This is a chapter about the temple. It's also a chapter about us. Because the Holy of Holies is gone, but there is godliness within us. And we hope that these words, these drawings, this music, and creativity will inspire you to find the holiness inside yourself, to realize that real joy and real glory and real meaning and real water that quenches the thirst of humanity is just around the corner. In comes the Messiah, the heralder, of a better tomorrow, and with them comes a nostalgia for the future by their side. So something I noticed and loved, absolutely loved, while reading through the commentaries is that many of them are written from a first-person perspective and in a conversational kind of style, and also some of them include really powerful personal stories, and I really think it's in the spirit of what you wrote here, because I feel like I got to know the authors through their commentaries as much as I got to know the text they were writing on. Is this something that you planned or something that kind of just happened?
1: I think it's something we model in our learning. I think when I teach the text, I interweave it or interleave it, hey <laughs> um, with with my own experiences and with my own feelings. And sometimes I say like, this really bothers me. Or like, this blows my mind. How does this make you feel? Like, I feel like every sheer, I'm asking someone, how does this make you feel? Um, which I think is not typical for learning Talmud, but like, that's the important part. How does this make you feel? Not, oh, did you totally get the shaklavataria That's nice. <laughs> I'm not knocking that. And shaklavataria is good and important. And like the deeper you get into that, the more you can feel if you allow yourself to feel. But the question I'm asking most of these learners who are coming in at a wide variety of levels from like People spend time in yeshiva to people who it's like, they don't even know what the Talmud is. I want to know how they feel about this. I want to know what they think. It's interesting. I didn't notice that most people write from the eye perspective, but I'm not surprised because that's actually what I want to read. I want to read what they think, not their like expert analysis. They're themselves. That's what exactly. they bring to the table that nobody else has.
0: I love that. I wish my Rebam. Asked me how I felt, how the text made me feel. That would have helped me a lot. And I really loved how, like, some of the commentaries really challenged, you know, the idea of what, you know, would be expected in a Talmud commentary. I think it was a really good kind of eye-opener for me about, like, what do I expect to get from a text? Do I expect to, you know, know what's going to say? Or, like, am I prepared to be kind of, you know, surprised or shocked or, or like, left in awe?
1: Yeah, and I think it's okay. Like, our intention was to elicit an emotional response. And again, I never tell anybody what to write.
0: I think it's a good reminder of, you know, how we kind of, kind of impose our own expectations on on the Talmud and what we expect it to be. I'm no Torah scholar, but I think your Talmud commentary is probably the first to address its reader in the second person. And... With all due respect to the other Talmud commentaries, it seems to me that there's a lot more spiritual power and empowerment in yours. But odds are that after listening to this, a lot of people will go back to reading Rashi or Rashba or Art Scroll instead of writing their own commentaries. And there's nothing more troubling to me about contemporary Judaism and nothing that I think about more often about contemporary Judaism that people don't have enough faith in themselves to believe that they have incredibly meaningful, powerful Torah that could not have been revealed before they were born, and that God put them here specifically to share that Torah. How do you empower people to have this faith in themselves and their own Torah?
1: You know, there's this story in Breshit. Yosef is talking is like with his father, and his father, Yaakov, is like, hey, go find your brother's. And so Yosef goes out and he's looking to find his brothers. He's wandering, he's wandering. He's like, oh man, I don't know where they are. And then he sees this guy and he goes up to this guy and he's like, do you know where my brothers are? And the guy's like, yeah, they're over there. Just above that hill. And Yosef goes over there and like, spoiler alert, His brothers sell him into slavery, he goes down to Egypt and the brothers eventually follow him down to Egypt and then all the Israelites move down to Egypt. Then they're enslaved in Egypt and then Moses arises and he leads them out of Egypt after a bunch of plagues in God's hand and a strong arm, yada, yada, yada. They cross the Red Sea, they get the 10 commandments and boom, we're a Jewish people. And it's all because of that one guy. And actually the commentators are split, they're split. Was it an angel or was it a guy? And I choose to believe it was a guy because it was just that one guy saying that one thing that changed the scope of Jewish history. This could be you, you who's listening right now. You might have that thing to say. Maybe you think it's not so great, but you know what? Maybe maybe you're gonna say something that's gonna inspire somebody else to say something else. You don't know your role in the chain of discovery of Torah and the discovery of truth. You don't know what power you might have in order to change our future, our collective future. If you don't speak up, if you don't help direct other people where to go, then our story might never be written. Certainly not the way that we need it to be. Preach it. Wow. And I, I, I also have to say, like, um, like, we all have imposter syndrome. I have imposter syndrome. I call myself a Roche-Kolel. It's like the most ridiculous thing in the world. I'm not a Roche-Kolel. I'm like some schlumpy Jew wandering around an icon. It's like, you know, uh, whatever. But we have to own it. We have to wear the monikers even if they don't feel right. It's our responsibility. It's our Yerusha. It's our real birthright. These texts. Yeah, I
0: don't have anything to add to that. That's, that just, that's about sums it up. <laughs> Rabbi Jeremy Barovitz, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Nathaniel.
0: Hadron mesechat We shall return to you, tractate sukkah. Between episodes, you can keep up with Interleaved on Facebook and Twitter. If you like what you heard, follow us, leave us a review, and share this with your friends. Special thanks to our executive producer, Dina Karp. Come back next time for another deep dive.